King series. Now, I keep giving you brief recaps because we're in that kind of uh, section where I kind of have to, just in case this might be someone's first time here or first time watching, so I'll try to do that as briefly as possible. But we've been studying the time in, in Israel's history when they were actually divided into two kingdoms. Okay, there was a northern and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Now, when that happened, the king of Israel was Jeroboam, and the king of Judah was Rehoboam. Okay, now, both were evil, both were disobedient. I'm not going to go into all that. They were all disobedient. They rejected God. They served idols. Uh, they were just terrible kings, right? Now, Rehoboam was succeeded by his son, Abijam. Okay, now, Abijam was just as evil and just as disobedient as Rehoboam, uh, and he reigned three years, right? Then, Abijam was succeeded by his son, Asa. Now, this is where things start to turn around. Asa was nothing like his father, and he didn't reign Judah like his father did. Asa was completely devoted to God, and he immediately started, like, reforming all of Judah. I mean, he banned the cult prostitutes, and he banned the idol worship, and, and he tore down the pagan temples, and he, he really had a fire for God. He even reinstituted God's law, and he reinstituted the worship of the one true God, and he just, he demanded that people in Judah serve the one true God. So he had a fire that none of them had before him. Uh, let's just go ahead and take a quick look at what uh, it says about him in Second Chronicles 14.1. It says, So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars and cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places uh, and the incense altars from all the cities uh, of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land uh, was undisturbed and there was no, no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. Now, because Asa was so faithful and because he loved the Lord and because he did all of these things, there was just peace and prosperity in Judah like they hadn't seen forever. There was just peace and prosperity was just reigning in Judah because of his faithfulness. And now he reigned for 41 years. He had a pretty long reign. But sadly, the entire 41 years were not quite that peaceful. So today we're going to take a look at, uh, at about 35 years after he became king, that fire, that passion he had for God started to burn out a little bit. Right? And Asa did what so many believers still do today. He just got distracted. He started getting distracted and, and taking his focus off of God. See, here's the thing we have to remember. The fuel that drives a believer's faith is, is daily walking close to God. Right? And you have to do that whether you've been saved a year or a hundred years. If you want to have you know, that passion, you have to you know, refuel, if you will, by staying close to God. Because our reserve of faith fuel if you will, increases when we read, when we pray, and when we serve. Have you ever noticed when you're not doing those things, you start feeling more distant from God? That's because those are the things that kind of, you know, build up our faith fuel. So later in Asa's reign, he stopped kind of refueling his faith like he had once done, right? And instead of having, uh, you know, his faith tank full, he ended up kind of just running on fumes, right? And that's what we've titled the message today, Running on Fumes. And and uh, it's my prayer that we, we learn today that, you know, if you want to finish your life strong, your faith life strong, and you don't want to finish running on fumes, just getting by as a believer, 
and stay close to God. And we're going to see this through Asa. So let's take a look at this. Jump in 2 Chronicles 14, 7. We'll start there. It says, For he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them valiant warriors. So what happened here is after everything he was doing, he was reforming, he was getting everybody to worship the God of, uh, of Israel that they were intended to worship. He decides, you know what, I'm going to rebuild and fortify Judah. I want to make us a military force, if you will. I, wanna, I want us to be able to defend everything God's given us. And God was pleased with that, and he blessed his efforts, and he was actually able to build this really formidable army. We're talking 580,000 soldiers in this army. That's pretty big, right? But just, just like now, whenever God is moving, what happens? The enemy slides in, doesn't he? No matter what, whatever God is blessing, the enemy will always attack it. And that's what happens. Listen to this, Second Chronicles 14.9. It says, Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Think about that, a million men and 300 chariots. Why even list the chariots? You know what I mean? There's a million men. And a million men, 300 chariots. And he came to Marisha. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley uh, of Zebetha. I love these names, and Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Look, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name, uh, and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let man, let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed, remember that, routed the Ethiopian before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerer, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away much plunder. They destroyed all the cities of Gerar for uh, the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, and they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock, and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels, and they returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so everything's going great. God's blessing them. There's peace on all sides. He builds this great army. Everything just seems to be going amazing. And then all of a sudden, the enemy steps in. And you talk about being under attack. And you talk about something that would make you a little nervous. Yeah, he had an army of 580,000 men. He was probably feeling pretty tough. And then they look over the walls of the city, and here comes a million-man army. Think about that, a million-man army. That's, that's just amazing numbers, amazing man, I mean, just amazing. And they're all armed, and they're ready to attack him. They're ready to attack Judah. Now, to give that some perspective, the U.S. military is comprised of about 1.7 1.7 million soldiers, and, the, and the, that's all of our military, about 1.7 million. So to have that many people come against one city would be like 70% of our military going out to attack one city. Can you imagine what a city would do if they looked out and saw 70% of our military surrounding them? This is what he was seeing coming against him. Right now, Asa's first move when he found out all these odds and how bad they were stacked against him. He didn't whine. He didn't cry. 
First thing he did was he took it to God. The first thing he did, he went straight to him. He asked for his help. He humbled himself and said, you know, they're attacking your people. You can defeat them. He surrendered to him. See, there's, a, there's, there's one sure way to test where your faith, if, you're, if your faith is where it should be. It's a, it's a really easy test you can do. Just pay attention to how you, fa- how you face adversity. Pay attention to that. Because how you face adversity says a lot about where you stand in your faith walk. It really does. Because if your first instinct is to take it to God, then you're doing pretty good. But if your first instinct is to try to figure out a way to take care of it on your own, that's a problem. Because people who do that, right, you'll find those people have the greatest anxiety of all believers. They're the ones that are staying awake at night, and and eventually they start questioning God because they've been trying to do everything their own way. But those who have learned to just trust God with it, those who just hand it over to God, those people understand why the song Amazing Grace was written. Because God just moves in such powerful ways. Have you ever prayed about something that was really troubling you and truly given it to God? I mean, given it to Him. And He just comes through in such a big way that all of a sudden all those praise songs start to mean something more to you. Because you understand what a faithful God we serve. Right? I mean, think about this. He just goes straight to God. This million-man army goes straight to him and says, take care of this. Now, I love what it says here. See, God didn't hesitate to help him. Sometimes I think that we look at God kind of like the pagans look at their God. We look at God like, well, i got to do enough to earn his help. Listen, you're never going to be able to learn his help. You're not good enough or to earn his help. You're not good enough. You never will be. Right? That's what's so amazing about this. He didn't even hesitate. All he said was, God, I can't do this. I need you. I'm trusting you. And God doesn't hesitate. He just helps him. It says he routed him. And it's neat that they use that word because the word for route in the Hebrew meant to, st- to attack, to strike down, or to plague. To attack, to strike down, or to plague. So basically, God descended on this army like a plague and just decimated him. I mean, just decimated him. Think about that. And when the battle ended, this million-man army that had everybody so afraid was running scared. It's a million-man army. See, Asa knew something that we often forget. There is no problem that is bigger than our God. There's no problem that is bigger than our God. And those life battles that we face that just that seem hopeless, listen, that's the enemy whispering that to you. Because what we see as hopeless, God sees as something he can easily defeat and send running. That's just the way it is. All we have to do is be like Asa and just humble ourselves and take it to God. Okay, now, this is a major event. You would think that God defeating a million-man army for you would stick with you. Am I right? How many people would forget about that one very quickly? I mean, that's one that would probably you would think would stick in our minds. But like so many believers today, believe it or not, Asa eventually forgot about this great blessing he forgot what god had done for him here right and when we forget god's past blessings listen it doesn't take long before that old fear and doubt starts creeping back in our lives again and we do we forget about it you know if you ever had god do something amazing for you and you're like i will never doubt again but we're kind of those christians that are like what what have you done for me lately type christians you know what i mean you're like that was last year this year i got this problem what are you gonna do now You know what I mean? We kind of forget what God's done, right? And when we start forgetting what God's done for us, I mean, just fear and doubt start taking over. And then every time a new struggle arises, we panic again and we start questioning God again instead of taking our issues to God. 
And then the next thing you know, we find ourselves trying to handle them on our own. And, you know, here's the thing. When we don't have the faith to take our issues to God, when you end up taking it to Him because you have to, not because you want to, it actually hinders how God can bless you. Did you know that? I can't stand it when people say, well, I've tried everything else. I guess I'll just pray. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, I've tried to fix it. I've talked to people, you know, taken advice, went to my counselor, and nothing's working. So I guess, you know, I guess I'll just pray or something. You know, and, and, and the way they say it, you know they don't really believe it. It just means they're desperate. Listen, when, when God falls to that low of a position in our lives, don't expect him to help you when you start praying. Because he knows if you believe He's capable of doing it. James tells us that in James 1.5, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wow, I can think of a lot of people around this country need to pray for that. Verse 6. But he must ask in faith without what? Without any doubting. All right, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect what? that he will receive anything from the Lord. And the reason why is because he's being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded means that you say, I love God, I serve God, he's given me eternal life, but I'll handle my own problems, I don't think God's going to step in. That's double-minded. When you act like God is the creator of the universe, but don't trust him like the creator of the universe. You, listen, when was the last time you actually stopped to remember all the things that God has done for you? I mean, when was the last time you really thought about that? I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were telling me how terrible their life was. And this is one of those things I have to just watch what I say, because it aggravates me really when people say this. But they were sitting there telling me how unfair God had been, and why does God allow this to happen in my life? And why does God allow that to happen in my life? And, and I blah, blah, just went on and on and on, and you know, I guess I should have been getting more compassionate, but I was just getting more aggravated. And so I stopped in mid-sentence, and I said, hold on a second, let me ask you a few questions here. I said, how are your kids? Doing really well. I said, well, what, remember when your kids were in the hospital? Yeah. That was scary, wasn't it? And they said, yeah. I said, what happened when you prayed about that? Well, we were blessed. Really? Yeah. Have you been, you know, struggling to make ends meet during this pandemic where people are being laid off? No, no. I've been blessed. I'm sitting here looking at them, waiting for something to click, and it wasn't clicking. And I'm going, well, how's your health? I'm doing pretty good. Why are you asking these things? And I'm like, yeah, God's really abandoned you. Your life is so terrible. You know, we forget. If you stop for just a second and think about all the things God had done for you, it would change your attitude. You know, I just, it drives me crazy. Listen, I'm talking about, think back to those times when you went to God with something that seemed huge and he showed up on time and in a big, amazing way and made you know that he is God and he is on your side. And that's happened to you if you've been a believer for any long amount of time. Right? We need to remember those things. We need to look back on those things. Right? Because, listen, when we look back on all the times God's delivered us, it makes us have the confidence to face anything. Listen, I remember a time when I lost a business and I was facing a quarter million dollars in debt. And you talk about a great weight loss plan. Anxiety is a great weight loss plan. I mean, I dropped to 150 pounds. As you can see, I've been past that problem. I've eaten myself since then, but, but I mean, I can remember God stepping through in such a big way that when people say now, well, why don't you worry about money? I'm like, why? Why worry about it? He's already shown me what he can do. 
know what I mean? Those are the things that should give us confidence. But here's the problem is we tend to worry more about the future than we remember the past. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. He doesn't want you to think back to all the things God's done for you. He doesn't want that. He wants you to see your problem as bigger than God. And he's going to whisper that in your ear all day long. He's going to whisper excuses in your ear. Well, God's not going to help you with that. You're the one that got yourself in that financial shape. God's not going to get you out of that because God helps those that help themselves, which is nowhere in the Bible, but widely quoted, right? Or he says, well, you know, I'm, God's not going to save your marriage. He didn't tell you to pick that witch. I literally had somebody tell me that. I hate to pray about it. I'm the one that picked that woman. <laughs> I'm going, wow, how do you even respond and get out of that one clean? You know what I mean? But, I mean, some, the, the enemy's just whispering in your ear, your problems are too big. You've made a mess of your life. Right? Don't, don't take it to God. He's, he's just going to tell you it's your problem. See, what he does is he inflates the desperation of our problem. He inflates that and then deflates our faith or that faith can help us in that situation. And that's exactly what Satan is about to do to Asa the next time he has to face real adversity. We're going to look at that here in a minute. But before we look at that, speaking of his adversity... I want you to meet the new king of Israel. Okay, let's move into that. 1 Kings 15, 25. It says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the, uh, his sin, which he had made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, baby names, house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, and belong, uh, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So during the second year of Asa's reign, there's a new king about to take the throne. Okay, because Jeroboam's son Nadab was, was actually the king at that time. And he was as worthless as his dad and his grandfather. He was terrible. He was evil. He worshipped idol gods. And no change. Different person, same kind of king, right? Did everything wrong, and he rejected God, and God was angry with him. And, and what he didn't realize was that he was going to be the one to set the prophecy of Jeroboam's family destruction in motion. He didn't realize that, but he was going to be that one, right? So Nadab had this conflict with the Philistines, so he goes down to besiege them. Well, someone in the kingdom, Basha, decided that he was going to wait until he was gone, and he was going to kill him. And steal his throne from him. And that's exactly what he did. He killed him. And when he killed him, he took his place as king of Israel. Okay, so this is, this is a pretty big deal. And after Basha killed Nadab and becomes king of Israel, he does something that, that is actually prophecy being fulfilled. Look at this, 1 Kings 15, 28. It says, So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. It came about that as soon as it, he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any person alive until he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation uh, with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Basha. Now that's going to be fun to say for the rest of the time. Uh, between Asha and Basha, king of Israel, for all the days, for all their days, in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Tizra, and 
reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. So do you remember back when a few weeks ago we talked about how God finally told Jeroboam, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Here's what's going to happen. I've warned you. I've tried my best to draw you to me. I've given you chance after chance. Now here's what's going to happen. Everybody in your family is going to be destroyed. And he got, re- remember he got real specific, like the dogs were going to eat the bodies that were in the road and the birds were going to eat the bodies in the field. It was really, I mean, some Quentin Tarantino stuff, right? He got real specific. Well, this is, this is exactly what's happening here. Basha is unknowingly fulfilling that prophecy because when he became king, he killed everybody that was related to Jeroboam. Now, that sounds strange to us, but believe it or not, that was pretty common in that time. When a new king would take the throne, it was very common for them to kill everybody in the family of the previous king. And they would do that because they were afraid they might try to rise up and take the throne back someday. So they would kill everybody in the lineage so that they wouldn't rise up against them. Right? So now they have this new king. But the sad thing is, is Israel is no better off with Basha as king as they were Nadab or any of the other ones. Because the only thing Nadab and Basha agreed on was they still hated Israel. Judah, and they were constantly at war with Judah and trying to wipe them out. But does that sound familiar? Is it just me, or does it feel like that the media, that the world is just trying to wipe out faith completely? Do you guys ever feel that way? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, any wacko religion out there, they they lift it up as good and enlightening, and then they talk about Christians and we're shallow-minded, heathen, ignorant, bigots. I mean, (laughs) you name it, you know. Sometimes I look at it, you look at these, these people constantly trying to take God's people down, and I go, wow, that really hasn't changed, it's just changed forms a little bit. But that's another sermon, don't get me started on that. Okay, so let's move back to Asa here. 1 Kings 15, starting at verse 16. So it says, Now there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So here we are, Basha and Asha. i got to quit saying that. Basha and Asha, or Asa, were at war. Nothing new. Those two had been at war. Those two uh, countries had been at war. The divided kingdom had been at war since it first started, right? But something you notice right away is Basha seems to be a little bit more aggressive because he has this plan, and it's really actually a pretty good plan. Ramah was this city four miles outside of Jerusalem, and the main road went by Ramah. That's where all the commerce and trade would travel in and out. People traveling in and out would come on that road that went through Ramah. So Basha knew, listen, I'm going to fortify that city. And if I fortify that city, it gives me an advantage. Because I can control anyone who enters or leaves Judah. Anyone that tries to enter or leave Jerusalem, I got them. Because they have to come down this road. So his plan was basically to not allow anyone out or let anyone come back in. And he had two reasons for doing that. First of all, he knew it would kill Judah's trade. It would kill their business dealings. They couldn't get arms. They couldn't get the stuff to make arms. They couldn't get crops. A lot of the things that they got in trade, that would be killed with him guarding that road, not letting anyone enter out. And the other thing was Israel was still kind of sore about their people leaving and going joining forces with Judah. So this is also a way of keeping anybody else from defecting. So it was actually, it was a a pretty good plan. And so good that this actually scared Asa. And you can tell by the way he reacted. This scared Asa. And it actually revealed the condition of his faith at that moment. You'll see what I'm talking about. 1 Kings 15, starting in verse 18. 
says, Then Asa took all the silver and gold which were left in the treasury of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tibramon, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Okay, so evidently, all of a sudden, Asa forgot that, you know what? God delivered you from a million-man army. Anybody else thinking that? I mean, here comes this new king, and his big battle plan is not to, you know, have more men or have more weapons. His big battle plan was to besiege the road that led in and out of Judah. And that was his plan. And you would think that the first thing that would come to Asa's mind would be, I know how to handle this. Last time we had somebody come up against us, I went to God and he took care of all of them, just wiped them out. A million, a million men, 300 chariots, wiped them out, and I got to take all their animals, right? And I got to take all their plunder. You'd think that would be the first thing that would jump into his mind. But instead of going to God for help, now this is what shows his spiritual condition, he hires mercenaries. That's what he does. He hires mercenaries, pagan mercenaries. And not just any mercenaries, the pagans that he hired were the Assyrians. And I'll explain why that means something here in a minute. And how he paid them was amazing. He paid them an unbelievable amount of money. Right? He actually gave them everything in the king's treasury, everything in his treasury, and then he robbed everything out of the house of God and gave that to him. That's the price he paid to hire these mercenaries when the last time he needed help in battle, he just asked God. It didn't cost him anything. He actually gained wealth from it. He doesn't do any of that. He hires the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were known for being godless and brutal and merciless in battle. I mean, they would do some things to kings that you can't imagine. Like, they would capture kings sometimes and lay them open and pull out their entrails and tie them to a horse and drag them through the town to let everybody know they were in charge. Right? I mean, they were... That's pretty ripe. I mean, that was... They were just wicked, wicked people. We actually get the word assassin from the Assyrians. That's got to be something that makes the Assyrians happy. You know what I mean? That's where you get the word assassin from. So... Here's what Asa did. He planned to have the Assyrians attack other important cities in Israel. And he did that because he knew that when Basha heard about that being new king, he would leave Ramah and protect those other cities. Because he wasn't going to focus on one city when he was being attacked by several other cities. Now, at first, let's be honest, it kind of sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? It kind of sounds like a good plan. Because it worked. Basha did leave Ramah. Look at 1 Kings 15.20. It says, so Ben-Hadad uh, listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel, Beth, Mekah, and Chenaroth beside, uh, besides all the land of Naphtali. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and remained in Tizra. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had built and King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Okay, so Basha did leave. It worked. He did leave, right? And so as soon as he leaves, Asa makes everybody, everybody in the city go out and tear stone by stone, brick by brick, 
stick by stick, tear that city completely down, and use that stuff to fortify their own cities. That's what he had them do. And at first glance, again, you look at it and say, well, it seems like a pretty good plan. I mean, he did get away with it. But listen, you never get away with sin. Because God was angry because Asa's lack of faith. He had a big opportunity here to make a statement, not just to his own people, but to Israel who had broken away from them. This would have been a great time for him to show how powerful God was with people who used to be in his own kingdom. But he didn't remember that God had done those things for him or he didn't care. Right? And listen, God doesn't want his people making deals with the devil. And that's exactly what he did. He hired merciless pagans and gave them everything, basically bankrupted Judah to do his dirty work for him instead of just going to God. I mean, all God's people have to do is trust him. And he'd already proven that to him, but he had started drifting away from God by this point. Right? So God sends a prophet to pronounce judgment on Asa and Judah. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when you're doing something wrong and someone comes to you, there's two ways you can react, right? You can be humble and say, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're coming to me. I appreciate that. You're not talking behind my back. You're coming to me. Or you can get angry. Let's see what he does here. Second Chronicles 16, 7. It says, at that time, Hanai, the seer, came to King Asa and told him, because you have put your trust in the king of Aram instead of the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army of the king of Aram. Basically he's saying, if you would have just let God take care of this problem, that nation you're running scared to, you would have controlled them. God would have given you them. Right? Verse 8. Do you remember what happened when the Ethiopians and Libyans and, and their vast army with all their chariots and charioteers, at that time you relied on the Lord and he handed them over to you? The eyes of the Lord searched the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have become. Okay, maybe it wasn't the nicest way to tell him. He says, what a fool you have become, or you have been. For now, you will be at war. Asa became so angry with Hannah, now listen to this, for saying this, that he threw him into prison and put him in stocks. Okay, at that time, Asa also began to oppress some of his people. Okay, when the prophet came to him and said, did you forget, or what are you, an idiot? If you would have trusted God, he would have defeated Basha and given you the mercenaries that you hired, and you would have been in control of them too. But you didn't trust him. And since you're such an idiot, now you're going to be at war with those people. You really think they're going to stay your friends? You paid them. As soon as they get a chance, they're going to attack you again. And he basically flat out calls him a fool. And it angers Asa. That's how he responds to it. And he actually has the prophet imprisoned. Then he started taking his anger out on the people of Judah, and he started oppressing them. Okay, isn't it funny how pride makes us react when we're faced with the truth? Isn't it funny? Sometimes it, it, it drives me crazy, because I can't tell you how many times I've had people get mad at me for this very thing. They'll come to me and say, tell me what's wrong. And they'll explain their life to me, and I'll say, well, you, you know, you need to get back in church. You need to start reading the Word of God again. You, you're drifted away from God. Oh, self-righteous. They get all mad at me. I'm going, listen, you came to me. I'm just telling you what God said. And they get all mad because when they come to me, what they really want is they want me to, to help them justify the way they're living. That's what they want. See, what he was hoping, when he saw this prophet coming, he was probably hoping that this prophet was going to say, God said you are an amazing battle planner. That was so smart what you did. That's probably what he was hoping to hear. But he told him the truth. Listen, 
it's tough to accept responsibility for what we do, especially when what we're doing is wrong. And when somebody does it, sometimes it feels offensive, right? But, I mean, it's hard to believe that this is the same man that we read about earlier, isn't it? Isn't it? You can't hardly recognize who he is, right? And that's what happens. The farther away from God you get, the more it changes you. And I'm talking to believers. As believers, the farther away from God you get, the more it changes you. And you can't tell me you don't feel it when it starts to happen. The farther you get away, the more you change. I mean, this is the man who restored Judah to the true God and destroyed all the idols and all the idol worship places. This is the same guy. Does it sound like him? Doesn't sound like him anymore, does it? I mean, this is the guy who fired his grandmother from being queen. I mean, that's, that's pretty bold. His grandma was making idols, and so he cans her, fires her, won't let her be queen anymore. This is that guy. This is the man who trusted God in battle against a million-man army, completely trusted God. You find yourself asking, what the heck happened to him? Right? What happened to him? What made him turn around like this? Well, his love for God used to fuel him. Now he wasn't close to God anymore, and he was running out of fuel. Seems like he was running out of gas. Actually, it seems like he was running on fumes. Because this is a totally, totally different person. Now, people have always asked me, why do you think that happened? It never really tells us why that happened, what made him turn his heart away. And I, all I can do is, is, is venture a guess based on the information we have. And here's what I'd say happened, and you tell me if you think this sounds right. My guess is over those first 35 years, everybody was going, oh, what a great king Asa is. Notice we have peace on all sides and prosperity. Look at all the great things that have come since he's been our leader. The previous leaders were terrible and they made us worship idol gods, but not our great king. You start to see what's happening here? I'd say for 35 years, as his kingdom grew and as his kingdom prospered, I'd say his pride probably grew also. He probably heard all the things people were saying and, and kind of believed the hype. You know what I mean? He believed the hype. He probably thought he was special. He probably thought that the reason God let him beat that million-man army was because he deserved it. He was that good of a leader. That's probably how he looked back on what God had done for him. I'd say pride is what took over here, right? I mean, he's probably saying, well, after all, I mean, look how good the kingdom is since I've been here. He probably just got so prideful that there was no room for his pride and God in the same building anymore. And you know what? He makes the same mistake that a lot of older Christians make. And, I, and I've seen this happen a lot. We don't talk about it a lot. But when you're an older Christian that's been around for a while, and you serve God for a while, sometimes we can actually rest in that and be arrogant in that. I've seen that time and time again. It happens to all of us. We start to think we've been saved so long, we don't have to worry about being tricked by the devil anymore. I had someone tell me one time, I'll never forget this. I had someone tell me one time, this person believed you could lose your salvation, which is what we call ridiculous. Okay, unbiblical, unfounded. I got a bunch more names for it. And so I, I went to her one day and I said, so let me ask you something. How long have you been saved? She said, 35 years. I said, well, that's amazing. Do you think you could fall from grace? No. I said, why? She said, well, once you've been in it so long, you just get to a point where you can't lose it anymore. You get that close to God. That woman is more ready for a fall than anybody I know. When you start feeling that way, and, and like, you know, like Asa, a lot of older Christians start to feel like, well, you know, we've, been, we've been doing this a long time. You know, we're not going to fall into the devil's snares like a new Christian. So we let our guard down, and we start to trust in our own strength and our own righteousness 
and danger starts knocking at the door as soon as you get to that point. Right? I mean, we, we don't read as much as we used to. We don't pray as much as we used to. We don't serve as much as we used to. I mean, after all, we've read it all before, right? And we've prayed for years. God knows our heart. No sense in babbling on and on to him. Right? This is, this is how we start to think. And before you know it, when you stop fueling your spirit with that closeness to God, reading his word, worshiping, when you stop fueling your spirit, you find that you're doing and saying things you never used to. You're allowing things you never would allow. You're actually doing things you thought you would never do. And all of a sudden you realize how vulnerable you are the farther away from God you get. How empty your faith tank is, how you might just be running on fumes. And this is, this is something that's really dangerous. If you can look back and say, gosh, I missed that fire when I first got saved, you better pay attention to that. Because you know what? You need that fire. Because if you don't have it, you'll be running on fumes. Now, can you fix that? Yeah, I mean, you can fix that. Put your focus back on the things you had it on when you were on fire for God, and you'll be on fire for Him again. Right? That's how you fix it. But here's the thing. When you start getting closer to God again, I don't care how empty your tank is, when you start reading and worshiping and doing the things you used to do, that needle starts rising, and it rises quickly. Right? But the only way that's going to happen is if you get close to God again. Right? And if you don't, if you choose not to, if you choose to, to rest in your new condition, there's only one option left. When pride won't let you repent and go back to where you started, all that's left is anger and bitterness, and that's what we see as we end Asa's life here. Look at this, 1 Kings 15, 23 and 24. Now the rest of the acts of Asa and all his might and all he did and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. So basically, Asa died an angry, sick, bitter old man who had some issue in his feet. A lot of people always try to figure out what it was. I'm like, who cares? You don't know, believe how many people say, I think it was gout. I think it was, I'm like, I think I don't care. It was bad, whatever it was. Right, but he had this issue in his feet. He was angry. He was bitter. He never rejected God. He just died a pretty angry, bitter Christian. He just died that way. So if, if you could pick one thing, or just a couple things that you can learn from Ace's life, they're pretty simple. First, when we do things God's way, he's going to bless our lives. And when he blesses our lives, we need to keep that fresh in our minds for the next time we, we come across something we don't know how to handle. Right, because listen, his constant presence fuels us and makes us strong and makes us effective for him. But when we fill up with pride and do things our way, listen, you start running on fumes and you end up being bitter and hateful just like Asa. You know, I, I don't want you to think that Asa died a pagan and, and didn't believe anymore. That's not the case. He just could have finished like he started if he would have kept his tank full, and he didn't. Now I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And we do that because we believe the word of God's powerful. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if there's anyone here that would like me to pray for them, they're not sure where they stand, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. If you're watching on, bless those people. If you're watching online or listening online, God knows your heart. Listen, believers, I really want to pray for us. I, you know, I was contacted 
the other day, and, and, and they were talking about how afraid they were that this was the end of time. And I told them, I said, you know, no one knows when the end is coming, but if we lived every day like it was coming tomorrow, we wouldn't have to worry. If we lived every day making sure we shared what we know, staying on fire for God with a full tank of faith, we would make an impact every day until he does come. I'm not worried about when he comes, just that he finds me doing what he wants me to do when he gets here. That's our responsibility. Be careful. It's so easy to run out of that fuel. It's so easy to be running on fumes, going through the motions, going to church becomes routine. Faith becomes routine. We don't want to be those kind of believers. We want to be the kind that continues to make the impact like Asa made when he first became king. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you that you love us despite the fact that we're not worthy of your love. I thank you, Lord, that you're not worried about who we are or who we've been, just what we believe. You've promised us, Lord, that anyone who would believe that what your son Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. So I just pray that whatever's holding them back, you move it aside and let them believe your promise that whosoever believes has eternal life. If they make that decision, I just pray that they would contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, it is so easy, so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to just get by, running on fumes. God, give us a desire to have our tanks of faith full. Let us desire that passion we had when we first believed. Because we live in a difficult time. And the time we live in needs Christians who are on fire for you. Let us be those lights and those testimonies that draw others to you. We just thank you for all that you do. We ask you to go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.